What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. This is Major Roy McBride. I'm attempting to reach Dr. Clifford McBride. This is Dr. McBride's son. Not your average long-distance phone call there. That's Brad Pitt in the new Ad Astra from director James Gray. In the film, Pitt plays an astronaut who travels across the solar system to find his father and save planet Earth. Along with a review of Ad Astra, we've got a very Chicago-centric top five. Steppenwolf member, movie performances. The Steppenwolf Theater Company turns 45 this year, and its venerable ensemble includes the likes of John Malkovich, Joan Allen, Gary Sinise, and Laurie Metcalf. I want this top five to be the best version of ourselves. It's a lot of pressure, Dad. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. Confession, if I thought anyone would listen to a podcast with us talking about theater instead of movies, that might just be the end of Film Spotting, Josh. Yeah, I don't think you've got your guy here, so good luck with that. <laughs> theater spotting just doesn't really roll off the tongue. Doesn't sound quite as nice either. No, no, but I have been consuming a lot of theater most of my life, but especially lately, it seems, between the Goodman, Steppenwolf, of course, here in Chicago, our beloved APT in Spring Green, so many good options and a lot of great plays in town right now. We're going to talk about one of those venerated theater companies, Steppenwolf, later in the show. The top five is inspired by the new book, Ensemble and Oral History of Chicago Theater by Chicago journalist Mark Larson. The Steppenwolf Ensemble, not an obscure bunch, Josh. A lot of familiar names there. That's absolutely true. But first, a movie it's really hard to imagine being adapted for the stage, Ad Astra. What is happening out there? is a crisis of unknown magnitude. We believe your father may be involved. My father's dead. What exactly are you requiring from me? Exploration isn't always a noble venture. We have to hold out the possibility that your father may be hiding from us. Bad timing, Josh, for me to have to do the intro when I just came from seeing Ad Astra, the latest film, co-written by and directed by James Gray, starring Brad Pitt as an astronaut, Roy McBride. It's set in the near future. Some opening text tells us he gets a mission from Spacecom, which I guess is sort of NASA in the future. He accepts it to go seek the source of these destructive power surges that just might have something to do with his missing father, Clifford McBride, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Fortunately, as always, we have our listeners here, and one of those listeners, Alex from Boston, is going to bail me out. He wrote in saying, for the most part, I really enjoyed the film. 
Pitt's performance, the special effects, and the sound design, not to mention the emphasis on philosophical themes, all made the film feel like both an homage to 2001, a space odyssey, as well as a strong film in its own right. However, the narration felt a bit too on the nose for me at times, and I'm not sure I totally bought into it. For example, Pitt narrates that he has, quote, caused pain, and we can see that this idea of him causing others pain, as his father did, truly haunts him. However, I don't think the film shows us in a strong enough manner that he has, in fact, caused others pain. Through a couple of flashbacks, we see Pitt's character push his wife away, but that's about all we see in terms of past pain cause. We should note his wife in those flashbacks is portrayed by Liv Tyler. The filmmakers want us to trust in the narration, and while I do trust in much of it, I believe the film could have done a better job showing, not telling here. Big fan of the show, and I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. So thank you, Alex, because not only is it a good place to start, I think, with this movie, but it does tie back to a fairly recent space movie about fathers and children that I adored and you were less enamored with. That would be Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, where I believe your primary complaint was that it did too much telling and not enough showing, though very different circumstances in the case of Interstellar. It's a lot of scientists sharing a lot of scientific mumbo jumbo and talking about time travel. Here, Brad Pitt, for most of the film's running time, has nobody to talk to but himself. And that is where that narration comes in. Do you agree with Alex that this movie has a too much telling problem? Yeah, I think he's he's right. He's onto something here. The catch, though, is the movie probably should show us more, but what it does show us is so visually arresting and astounding, and I would include the sound design as he did in that, that it makes up for that telliness that I think it does suffer a little bit from. Real quickly, I think it is distinct from Interstellar. I like this more than Interstellar. Um, You're right. There are some very clear thematic parallels in terms of children wrestling with the decisions, the choices of their fathers and vice versa. And trying to save the future of mankind. Exactly. At the same time. Yeah. 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 I think, um, you know, but you, you recall my reservations correctly. It was more a lot of scientists explaining us things that we just didn't need in Interstellar. And it got a little wishy-washy in terms of its conclusion for me. Um, Kind of a love is all you need uh, ending that I think was just a little bit vague. Uh, Here, we are very clear, I think, in Ad Astra what the movie's concerns are. They are primarily interpersonal between Pitt and his father, played by Tommy Lee Jones. They are meant to stand in for really anyone's struggle with um, a distant father, maybe that's because of, you know, just being estranged from a father. Maybe it's because of a father who died while someone was young. Um, Maybe it's more severe being abandoned by a father. Um, So I think the movie wants to serve as this metaphor for that sort of experience. And a lot of people might resonate with it. Um, I do think it's thuddingly literal in wanting to (laughs) explore that idea, not only for the voiceover that Alex mentions, but it really doubles down on the explanations because Roy also has to submit to these periodic psychological evaluations. And this involves him answering questions that an artificial intelligence program asks him about his mood, his state of mind. He's also having his biometrics measured at the same time. And, you know, a a fascinating reveal here about Pitt's character is he passes these with flying colors. And we get a sense of how he's feeling in his answers, but we also get a sense that he's saying what he knows the AI program wants to hear. 
And then he admits later in the voiceover that he is able to compartmentalize his feelings. And I do feel like perhaps Gray and his co-writer here, who is Ethan Gross, maybe they would have been better off picking one of those conceits, picking either the voiceover, which does run throughout the film, or picking these psychological evaluations. I found the evaluations more interesting, actually, because as I mentioned, they're working on two levels. Mm -hmm. We see that Roy is trying to deceive the machine. He's trying to deceive himself, but they're also tells. There's some suspense there. There's some suspense. You actually want to know whether or not he's going to pass. Pitt gives us... This is where Pitt does some of his best acting, I think, is because we can see where he's being deceptive with himself and with the machine. So in a sense – And with us. It's a test with with the audience. Yes, for sure. So there are some intricacies to that conceit that I really like and also somewhat – render the voiceover pointless in a way. It would it would make the whole movie a little bit more mysterious and less literal. Again, I don't think it torpedoes the movie mm-hmm. at all. I think there are plenty of other really amazing things about it that we should get to. Um, but I do think as a starting point that that is a flaw, significant flaw. Hmm. We should point out or go back to Alex's original comments and note that he is being very specific in a way that he thought the voiceover failed, which is in terms of us actually understanding what's driving Pitt's character, what Roy is really going through beyond what we just see in those glimpses or hear about in the voiceover. And I disagree with him. I think I disagree overall with you, too, in terms of the effectiveness of the narration, but I'll maybe get to my biggest reason why here in a second. But I think what we get in the voiceover is significant in terms of giving us that sense of the pain he has caused others. I think that the flashbacks, what we get are all we need to see. I'm glad we didn't get a lot more exposition, frankly. I would counter what Alex is saying with that. But also, I think most significantly, it's not only in those tests and the way he's trying to trick the virtual therapist there, if you will, but it's what you see in Pitt's performance. You see the weariness on his face. You see a vulnerability that comes through. You see the fact that he seems exhausted by life. He's mostly passing those tests and what we hear about him and what we see play out is that he is so unflappable, Mm -hmm. right? His, His heart rate doesn't get above 60 even when he's falling from the sky and probably about to die. But that's also, I think, a suggestion that He's kind of thrown in the towel on himself. He's kind of thrown in the towel on any real expectations for any type of real connection out of life whatsoever or any deeper meaning or truth. And whether or not that is, of course, tied to his father, I think that is an implication in him going missing. But that job, his past, all of those things together have sort of conspired against him to the point where he's compartmentalized so much that that's all he's got is just this kind of tiny little box of a life that he really can't break out of. I think we see it too in his actions in terms of just going on these missions without questioning them at all anyway. Sure. You know, he clearly is seeking something that his life and his job otherwise aren't giving him. I already mentioned that I just came from the movie. This is the last time I'll mention it, but it's really a shame that we're sitting here and I have to talk about what I think is the best film of the year, Josh. Without well, a single note in front of me. I liked it more than Interstellar, too, and I loved Interstellar. Well, no, that that's good. I, I like to get this raw reaction yeah. from you. I, I think that's when things get fun. But I will point out that everything you've just listed are reasons why we don't need the voiceover. Hmm. You, you talked about the actions we see. You talked about sure. the performance that Pitt gives, which I agree with. And those are things that kind of, you know— 
mean that the voiceover is redundant and you're to describe it as a virtual therapist. That's exactly right. This struck me. The, the entire film struck me as, you know, the most visually arresting session of talk therapy you can imagine because we're getting his therapy with this AI in a sense. And we're also very much getting it in the voiceover. And this puts it in, you know, I, I'm. I can see why you think it's the best film of the year so far, quite possibly, because it puts us in a grand tradition Mm -hmm. of sci-fi. You could call it inner space, outer space sci-fi. I'd go all the way back to Solaris, to the Andrei Tarkovsky film that uh, is one of the first ones I can think of to do this, where the the further they zoom out, the more they zoom in on the characters' Mm -hmm. interpersonal demons. Um, Soderbergh maybe kicked off the new wave of this when he remade Solaris with George Clooney in 2002. And then think about these other ones that we've gotten recently. I would include Interstellar, which we've already discussed. I'd also include Gravity. And how about Arrival as well? All of these are more concerned with the inner workings, really things that their main characters could bring to a therapy session, Mm -hmm. um, but they're enacting them against this vast cosmic landscape, essentially. And so the question for me is often how those two things are merged, how interestingly they're merged. And I think that Ad Astra does it probably, I think it does it better than Interstellar, as I said, and I think it does it about as good as Gravity and Arrival. So yeah, this is a a really strong film in a lot of ways, but in that specific area, um, I I think it it doubles down on the explanations. It doesn't trust itself quite as much. And the other thing I would say is- I think explanation is too strong of a word though, because it suggests kind of like Interstellar, people explaining things. Well, and no, I think it's I don't mostly mean explaining... poetic here. I think it's more of a Malik type voiceover than anything. Oh, that's it's closer that's to kind that. kind of strong because Malik often it is literal poetry. And and if you think about the end of this film, here, I would say um, we are essentially getting I don't think it trusts Pitt's performance enough, to hmm. be honest with you, because the first two thirds of the film, it's allowing his charisma to carry us through I don't want to say sequences that are routine because these are some of the most visually beautiful sequences. Um, But until we get to kind of the breakthrough where we start to really see what he's wrestling with in that final third, we get to basically see his personal awakening without giving anything away. And I feel at that point, it it almost pushes the performance aside by shoving in a lot of voiceover narration when that is where the voiceover narration should drop away. Hmm. Pitt's face should be all we need because we've seen he's capable of it. Um, again, doesn't ruin the movie for me, but I was ki- I was kind of like, shh, shh, I just like be quiet. See, I wanted the movie to be quiet. What you're describing, what you were after there, or what you wanted most from the movie, that's exactly what I got. I was very aware in the theater for the last at least half hour of this film, that while we were having these real breakthroughs, while the film really was tying up these loose ends, and for me, an incredibly satisfying and heartfelt way, and not in a remotely treacly way or overly sentimental way, I think that's really kind of the trick of the movie, I was very aware that the voiceover, I felt, dropped out completely. Other than one or two more instances, or at least one notable one at the end of him talking to that recorder and having to get approval... I felt like the voiceover disappeared and it was a sense of Gray really understanding that once we were watching Pitt actually wrestle with what otherwise has been something that's been in his head. It's something that's in his mind and in his heart, but he hasn't been actually able to sort of tangibly feel it. And once he does get there, then 
I thought that the voiceover really kind of dropped away. Maybe there's something distinct in having him actually verbalize it that is pointed because this is, you know, a man's man. We're in the future, but he's clearly modeled after men like his father of a different era Mm -hmm. who didn't speak much, perhaps, but did their jobs and did them well. So maybe it's an interesting decision to make him – there's something crucial perhaps about him verbalizing where he's arrived at. And I feel like they merge at the end where there is a report he gives to the AI program, but he's being more forthcoming. And it's it's almost like the voiceover, which has always been a little more Mm -hmm. forthcoming, um, merges with the report he's giving. And I still, it's it's just the, the image lover in me would have liked it better if Gray had found, because he is such a master at composition and using the cinematography, we've got to get to that, um, had found a way to capture that just by something purely we see on Mm -hmm. the screen. Yeah. Last comments about the voiceover. I guess it didn't bother me largely because I was so blown away by every other aspect of the film. And because, as I suggested, I do feel that it's more poetic than literal, which is all I want from a voiceover. I wanted to suggest something. I wanted to give us a longing, a yearning that isn't otherwise there in the character. And this character certainly isn't expressing any of that outwardly to anyone until he starts to crack a little bit. And we get some of that in some of those personal reports. But here's the other reason, Josh, you mentioned a bunch of movies that this film kind of follows in line with. And that's great. I like, I think all of those films, but you left out a movie that certainly isn't sci-fi, but for me is the absolute justification in and of itself for the voiceover. And I'll pose it to you this way. Is Apocalypse Now still as good of a movie without Willard's voiceover? Well, I I mean... Because that's what this movie is. This is Apocalypse Now in space. 100%. And of course, Conrad gave it to us before Coppola did, right? But this journey into the heart of darkness, into this father figure who has gone off into the jungle, and it's hilarious, ironic, right? Because James Gray literally left the jungle in his last movie, The Lost City of Z, and has now actually made the closest thing to a remake of Apocalypse. Now, except here, the jungle is Neptune, and that voiceover is right in line with Martin Sheen's in Apocalypse. Now, including what really tipped me off, besides the fact there are obvious story parallels, there are two moments in particular. One, fairly early in the film, as he's off on his journey, where he says something about his father like, if I even see him, what do I expect of him? You know, what kind of man do I think he is or do I expect him to be? It's much more poetic than that, but it's just like something we hear Willard say about Colonel Kurtz. And then later, it's just a snippet that we hear in a broadcast, a transmission from Tommy Lee Jones's character, the father. But he says something like, your moral boundaries don't apply to me anymore. I have total clarity, right? And that is is something straight out of Marlon Brando's voiceover in that film. So I feel like that there's an homage there that he was – He was tapping into something that has been done before, but doing it in this science fiction setting that I found really compelling. Yeah, I'll admit the Apocalypse Now comparison didn't strike me while I was watching. It was Debbie, actually, who brought it up. This was our date night. She brought it up right away afterwards. But as far as the voiceover, I'd really have to go back and sit, you know, to make a one-to-one comparison, I'd have to sit through Apocalypse Now and and just kind of consider the voiceover. But in this context, um, yeah, I just – 
I guess I just don't see it as a strength. Sure. I, again, it wouldn't derail the film. It's not something I point to as that's what makes Ad Astra special. If anything, maybe it limits it a little bit. But um, so yeah, let's let's get to some of this other really jaw dropping stuff. A lot of the credit goes to the cinematographer here, Hoyta Van Hoytema, who also shot Interstellar. Yes, exactly, <laughs> as well as Dunkirk and her. We've mentioned him many times on the show. There is a severe beauty to what they put on the screen here. And maybe one of the early examples um, might be when they're on the moon, which at this point has the sad reality of sort of a a flyover airport, you know, an airport you have to stop on your way to somewhere else. I think this movie does a real good job of depicting what the near future of space travel might look like. And it's pretty much like dreary air travel in a lot of ways. Without going for sort of easy jokes. No, not at all. No. no. And and so, yeah, we're on the moon. And at this point, uh, Roy has to get to another base on the moon and takes a rover, is accompanied, and there other, there's a rover chase. Let's just say that. But this is shot so that it's essentially a monochrome scheme, except for the gold flecks of their visors, of their helmets. And I think there's even um, some stripes on, on their astronaut outfits. And it was so familiar and otherworldly. The only thing that came to mind, which was similar to me, were the car chases in Mad Max Fury Road. Totally. Because it, it's obviously a totally different you know, yes. setting, but there was something about we recognize the vehicles, even the yeah. astronaut spacesuits are familiar, but and the way they were- there's a desert aspect yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah, there's a desert aspect, but also it was just so bizarre mm-hmm. to watch. And the way gra- they use gravity to adjust the motion of this chase, it's almost an aside moment in the film that you could have lifted out in terms Mm -hmm. of plot and really possibly even theme, but it's also so crucial in establishing, again, the severe beauty within which this story is taking place. I just love that scene. Yeah, I did too. There are some great set pieces here, which I didn't necessarily expect from James Gray in this film, which is more a little bit philosophical. And I wouldn't say it's slow. I would say it's a deliberate film. And I think if you get under the spell of it, which I absolutely did, then the pace is perfect because you sort of float through this movie with Pitt's character, mm-hmm. with all of these characters, and they do use those space suits, in particular the helmets, very well because there's this repeated notion of images being reflected back on them. And maybe it's the only point in the film that I felt was too heavy-handed. There's a moment where I want to say, if I'm remembering correctly, he's looking at the image of his father talking on basically like a tablet and lifts it up in front of him. And what we get in that moment is a very deliberate case where his face, Tommy Lee yeah. Jones as a father has now merged with Brad. It's Pitt, like a son. see-through tablet. It's like a futuristic exactly. see-through tablet. So yeah, yeah. their profiles merge. Yeah, yeah. They are now one, which we've heard about the connections throughout the film up to this point. But what I like about it is that there's something about the angle gray uses to film a lot of these scenes where We'll see what Brad Pitt is seeing before the camera shows it to us, but through the reflection of the helmet. So it it builds up a little bit of suspense there. It builds up this idea that we're kind of always trying to look 
peer around a little bit and see what's coming at us. And sometimes it's just the beauty of the images themselves, the lights sort of reflecting off the cosmos in their helmets. I think it also captures his hyper competency, mm-hmm. really. You know how this this guy always is a step or two ahead of things because he's trained himself to be. Because to your earlier point, he's pared his life mm-hmm. down to where this is all that is important. So yeah, those visual details emphasize that as well. How about the Mars sequence? Speaking of set pieces, this is a little bit of a longer one. But when he does arrive on Mars, which is sort of his last point before jumping off to Neptune, the production designer here, Kevin Thompson, there's so many rooms that have these these jutting, this jutting stonework, rust-colored stonework that just makes you feel, again, like you really are in another world that has been colonized mm-hmm. and try, they've tried to wrangle it into a comfortable space but haven't quite been able to keep Mars out. And even in the rooms that are supposed to, they use them, they call them comfort rooms, don't they, yeah. here on Mars? And a lot of these involve the base commander played by Ruth Nega. He has a long conversation Roy does with her in this room where the light is shifting around them. It would get dark over their face, then light over their faces. And I was wondering, are they trying to simulate, you know, the movement of the sun on earth to bring some sort of familiarity to it? But all it really does, it's beautiful, but all it really does is make you feel disoriented and ill Constant state of that. Um, And somehow the efforts to make this other world feel like the earth just they don't work. They undermine and purposefully the the moment here. So we always feel this uneasiness mm-hmm. with where we're at and where he's – if this is supposed to be the last safe place, what waits ahead for us? Yeah, and each one of these settings getting their own visual look and feel without them ever feeling disjointed from the rest of the film. The moon is another example where there's a sequence where it really stood out to me with Donald Sutherland who's in the movie briefly and they're having a conversation and it's very sterile and gray and uh, sort of monochrome almost in that moment which made sense for that particular moment in that setting but is nothing like what we see in the entire rest of the film. No, no it's not. The way this film culminates, which we're not going to get into spoiler territory here, but I will just say how much I appreciated, Josh, the movie delivering. I know I mentioned the word deliberate, but in terms of it being a sci-fi film, a satisfying sci-fi movie, not one that I felt like it takes any shortcuts or in the end it decides to sort of get lost in the abstract. It does deliver on the space journey aspect of the film, while it also, for me, completely delivers on the father-son relationship story, while also delivering what might be the most profoundly moving humanist message of any film we're going to see this year. The fact that it does all those things, for me, is what really makes this movie special. Yeah, and I think that it it is distinct from Interstellar, for me, in that way, that that maybe did get a little bit too lost in the abstract, um, for me. Mm-hmm. Ad Astra does not. I think maybe another a sci-fi film, not a space voyage film, but Annihilation, I think for me also got a very personal movie. It's another mm-hmm. inner space, outer space in some ways film um, that does get a little abstract for me at the end. Ad Astra, again, because a lot of its concerns are so there on the surface, is able to stay focused all the way through the end. Well, the good news is I feel like I've just skimmed the surface of this movie and that will justify at least one more viewing here before the end of the year. And I'm sure we'll have more chances to talk about this film as we get to our top 10 films of the year. Ad Astra is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. 
Up next, an edition of Massacre Theater with some out-of-this-world connections to this show, plus a Film Spotting Top 5 appreciation of legends of the screen and stage. Our favorite Steppenwolf member movie performances are next. Stay with us. If you find yourself on an island Feeling out of reach, chilled to the bone Everyone is gone without explanation. I will mend your coat. I will find a boat and take you back home. Take you back home. If you find yourself out in the badlands, 怪不得，他就是要我认出他来。谁啊？姚七，他就是要我认出他来，再娶我媳妇，要我死的命。You're listening to Film Spotting. That clip from 2015's *The Assassin*, Taiwanese filmmaker Ho Shao Shen. It was reviewed here on the show back on episode 562. And *The Assassin*, Josh, is one of the few, one of the very few movies that you and I have seen that made a letterbox list put together by friend of the show Sean Gilman. He also happens to be a longtime member of the Film Spotting advisory board, and appeared on a top five where we talked about wuxia movies. Sean's list was. The top 113 Chinese language films, not of all time, just of the 2010s. He's seen a lot of these movies, and Sean has at least one kid, maybe two. <laughs> But he has been busy, and this is certainly a labor of love for him. He's a Seattle-based critic. He writes for the Seattle Screen Scene, and we were doing some show planning earlier this year, trying to figure out what the next film spotting marathon would be. Would we, in fact, even try to fit another one in before the end of 2019? And Sean's list popped up because a lot of people were talking about the end of the decade, and we were talking about the best films. Of the past ten years, and of course, film spotting madness. Looking back on these ten years, that will come in 2020. And Sean thought these lists were notable for their lack of Chinese language films. We decided then to help school us. We asked him to curate a four-film marathon. He gave us 11 or 12 really good options from that list of 113, and with his help, we pared it down to four movies. So this marathon, contemporary Chinese cinema, if you will, is going to begin not next week but the following week with the show that will post the weekend of October 11th. Here's the titles that we are going to tackle. We'll start with 2010's "Let the Bullets Fly." This is an action comedy set in 1920s China. It comes from director Zhang Wen. Then we're going to move on to the 2014 comic mystery *Midnight After* from Hong Kong director Fruit Chan. After that is Anne Wei's *Our Time Will Come*. This is from 2017. It's set in Japanese-occupied Hong Kong. And the last one will be *Ash Is Purest White* from Jia Zhenka. This may sound familiar because it's one of the years. Best-reviewed films right now in 2019. Ja is also the director of two more highly acclaimed films from this decade: 2013's *Touch of Sin* and 2015's *Mountains May Depart*. All those titles are available to rent digitally on demand. You can also check your local library. We never. 
want you to forget about interlibrary loan. More details on this or previous marathons are available at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Next week on the show, we are off. We're going to bury our heads in the sand. We're going to let this whole Joker discourse hit its apex or possibly its nadir, Josh. <laughs> and we'll return that weekend of October 11th with our review of the much talked about film. This is going to be easier for you to avoid. I'm going to be stuck here back in the States, have to plug my ears, not listen to any of the reviews or any of the nonsense about Joker. You'll be you'll be overseas. Yes, I will. I'm headed to Berlin and to Prague. If we have any listeners in either of those areas, please feel free to reach out, maybe able to meet up for a drink. I don't expect to pack any houses like Josh does when he goes to L.A. with having to do two different showings and a bouncer at the door. Not and true. You've got the, Not true the at VIP all. guest list. If you pay a little extra, Josh will sign a book for you or something. That, no, that's, that's not going to happen with me. But Please feel free to email feedback at filmspotting.net. We might just have a chance to meet up. I don't know. I'm guessing Joker might just be playing all over the world and well, everyone will be talking about it. Don't they already love it in Europe? I mean, wasn't it Venice, Venice? where it won yeah. top prize? So, exactly. yeah, big Joker fans over there, apparently. <laughs> apparently. We do like to give you a sense of what's coming on future episodes, at least as far out as we know, though it is always subject to change. And if you want to look for that schedule, you can find it at filmspotting.net slash episodes or just look for the episodes link at the top of the page. We do not have any advanced screening passes to give away over at filmspotting.net slash events, but that is where we keep all the information about Josh's many meetups. You've got one more that listeners who hear this episode may just have a chance to come out to if they're in the area. Yeah, I will be not jetting overseas like you, Adam, but I'll be in New Jersey on October 3 at Princeton Theological Seminary. Last Prague, stop. Jersey. Hey, hey, I hear Princeton's quite nice. I don't, I don't know. I'm expecting great things. Never been there myself, but we'll be out there to do a Q&A and a presentation about movies, our prayers. So yeah, if you're nearby and want to come, it's free, open to all, October 3 at Princeton Theological Seminary, and we'll have details at filmspotting.net slash events. Also on that page, that's probably where we should post some information about our new production assistant. Because we need one. Maybe we should set up a jobs page over at filmspotting.net, though. I don't know if it pays well enough to actually be called a job. Nevertheless, our PA, Andy Mitchell. Is it a favor? Yeah, it's mostly a favor. Andy Mitchell has done a great job with us. It was supposed to be, I think, a six-month appointment uh -huh. was my plan. And he's been doing it at least 18 months, maybe maybe about two years. And he really has done a wonderful job, but it is time for him to move on. So we're looking for a new PA. If you're in the area, you're into film, you're into the show, send us an email, give us your bona fides. You might just be Andy's replacement. It really sucks that Andy's leaving. It, it was sort of, uh, uh, it's not you, it's me from him. Like all of a sudden he was like, hey guys, I'm, I'm yeah. supposed to be done. And we right. were just humming along with all his help. Exactly. That's, and Andy, sorry to see you go. Yeah, we are for sure. Earlier this week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, you heard Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky share part one of their vice principles pairing. This is principles not with an A. Scorsese's Casino with the new Hustlers from Lorena Scafaria. Scorsese's 1995 Vegas set mob movie, of course, and Scafaria's new strip club set movie, which has been getting lots of Scorsese comparisons. You can get new episodes of The Next Picture Show wherever you get your podcasts or at nextpictureshow.net. Those episodes drop every 
Tuesday at midnight. Speaking of Joker, the current Film Spotting poll, which you can still vote in over at filmspotting.net, has us looking ahead to that film, specifically Joaquin Phoenix. You know, this didn't come up in our discussion of James Gray's Ad Astra. But I was thinking about the fact that Joaquin Phoenix, for me, as we've said a bunch here on the show recently, I think probably the greatest actor working today. Yeah. You just forgot all about a guy called Michael Fassbender. I old, did. Old news. I did. You've broken up. I'm all in on Joaquin Phoenix. Yes. And that's interesting because James Gray has twice directed Joaquin Phoenix in maybe the only two performances of his I actively dislike. We Ooh. own the night. We own the night and the immigrant. Well, the immigrant, I'm not as much of a fan of, mm-hmm. but we own the night. Now, remind me, because there was Wahlberg's in it as well. Yeah, and there was the other one that Gray made with Joaquin Phoenix and Wahlberg, which right? I have not seen. Okay, is that um, the Yards? The Yards. Yes, I think the Yards is the one where I do like his performance okay. um, quite a bit. But yeah, we own the night. I'm not super high on. And of course, Brad Pitt, infamously for me, is one of those guys that it took me a long time to get on board with. And here, in one collaboration. I think it's my favorite James Gray film. It's one of my favorite Brad Pitt films and Brad Pitt performances. But we're talking about Joaquin Phoenix, and we're asking you, what is Joaquin Phoenix's best performance? You could go other and pick one of those James Gray performances, but we gave you maybe some more notable ones in the form of Theodore from Spike Jones's Her, Doc Sportello from PTA's Inherent Vice, or Freddie Quell from PTA's The Master. You could also go with You Were Never Really Here, that Lynn Ramsey film where he plays Joe, or Walk the Line, his turn as Johnny Cash. We have a question here from Ren Bergstum. He must have left a comment on the poll. He wants to know, do I lose my film spotting card if I say I'm still here? You do. Really? Yeah, I'm making a ruling right okay. now, and right. well, there you we lose go. it. Sorry, Ren. <laughs> Vote now in that film spotting poll. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, just don't say anything as heretical as Ren just did. We hope you will tell us where you are listening from. That poll again, filmspotting.net. All right, let's move on to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene, and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. You know what we should do? We should get some f- money out of her, huh? What makes you think she's gotten me? Are you me? Her husband, Mr. Big, owns a guinea restaurant, all right? Look at the car she drives. Look at her fingernails. Big, red, sculpted, glossy nails. She got plenty of money. That's rich stuff. Yeah, maybe. You think she's some kind of hot don't you? She just looks... What? Clean. That was, yes, Joaquin Phoenix and Casey Affleck in 1995's To Die For. It was written by Buck Henry based on the book by Joyce Maynard, directed by Gus Van Sant. That massacre was part of a show a few weeks back when we had a 9 from 99 review of Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, along with some top five Kubrick scenes chatter. Now, why did we do To Die For? Well, let's see what connections listeners found. Here's Shoshana Rosenbaum. She's from Washington, D.C. For the first time ever, I know the answer to Massacre Theater. I knew it immediately and was surprised to hear when I tuned in last week that you haven't got a lot of submissions. So here's mine. It's To Die For. And the connection is Nicole Kidman, star of Eyes Wide Shut, 
who is absolutely terrifying here as Suzanne Stone. Joaquin Phoenix is also great. Isabel Bishop was one of the listeners, among others, who noted that we had talked about Phoenix in terms of our recent fall movie preview. And Brooke Thompson from Portland wrote in, Kidman would star in Batman Forever the same year as Eyes Wide Shut, 99, and now Joaquin in The Joker moves him into the same comic universe. Nice work, Brooke. Here's Faith Johnson from Austin, Texas. While I may be one of few entries, if my name is drawn, I must decline, as I've already won a massacre theater a few years ago. However, I still felt the need to say something about this absolutely wonderful film that is criminally underseen. It's a darkly hilarious, whip-smart script that explores the obsession with fame in a way that was relevant then, but still feels fresh now. I've never seen a performance quite like this one from Kidman. And while she's done some incredibly impressive dramatic work lately with Big Little Lies, I think it's a damn shame she hasn't gotten to show her range and have some fun like she clearly is here. I also don't know that I've ever seen another film that handles the mockumentary format quite as well as this one. It's never distracting and seems a natural way to tell this story. Sorry for the big block of text. I am typing this on my phone from a parking lot. I love the determination. I do hope other people check this movie out after hearing your segment. It's a true hidden gem. Yeah, wow. I love it. How responsible. Faith pulled over. I know. To send in. I mean, nice work. <laughs> she couldn't wait. She wasn't going to get back to her computer. <laughs> she had to share her thoughts about To Die For. Now that's the kind of passion we love here on Film Spotting. Josh, reach into the not very brimming Film Spotting hat, but the entries that we did get, they were they were filled with love, like Faith's. Why don't you tell us this week's winner? Winner is Sean Means from Salt Lake City. I believe Sean, a culture reporter and movie critic for the Salt Lake Tribune. Yeah, and a longtime listener of the show. I'm really excited for him that he finally won Massacre Theater. Sean, go ahead and email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line one more time. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, and apparently Sam, our producer, heard me bemoaning the lack of Massacre Theater entries and decided to throw all of our usual logic out the window and go with the most obvious scene possible, <laughs> with the most obvious tie into this week's show possible. Yeah, I, I think he's excited. I love it. Uh, there's there's the kind of a, a deep cut tie-in. That's kind of cool, too, with sure. this one. And I'm sure our listeners will come up with 17 others. Yeah. And I'll look forward to that part of Massacre Theater. We have combined several characters into one for the scene. So Sam is making it easy, and he's also ruining the integrity of the screenplay. Yes, completely, okay. which is so what we chaos. do whenever we perform anyway. So really, Fair doesn't enough. matter. You are going to give me the action as I started off. Josh, are you ready? Well, I am, I am playing multiple characters. Yeah, so let right. me get them all lined up in my head, um, <laughs> consolidated into one personality. I'm ready. And action. we got to get them down to 12 amps. 12 amps. You can't run a vacuum cleaner on 12 amps, John. We have to turn off the radars, the cabin heater, instrument display, the guidance computer, the whole smack. Whoa, guidance computer. What if they need to do another burn? They won't even know which way they're pointing. The more time we talk down here, the more juice they waste up there. I've been looking at the data for the past hour. That's the deal? That's the deal. And, and scene. scene. Nice and quick. Yeah. That was like a screwball comedy. A screwball comedy <laughs> it was, in space. It we was just, hilarious. We just turned that movie into. If you know what a film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, October 14th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks.
We want to take a quick moment to thank our donors, whether you're a $2, $5, or $10 a month subscriber, or a one-time donor. We appreciate you keeping us doing what we're doing. Two Silver Club donors this week, Josh, Brian, and Valparaiso, Indiana, and Mary, I believe in Iowa City. We have heard from Mary a lot over the years. Thank you to both of you. Finally, a gold-level donation comes to us from James in Ridgewood, New York. This summer, my wife and I celebrated the birth of our daughter, Ocean. While she's years away from being able to see her first movie, I figure it's never too early to get her started on film spotting. Your show has become one of her lullabies since I often listen as she's falling asleep on my shoulder. I've been listening to film spotting for more than 10 years now, and it's amazing for me to think about how much my life has changed during that time. One thing that hasn't changed is my love for movies, and your show has continually helped me discover new films and revisit old ones. Now, I hope your discussions are helping lay the groundwork for Ocean to grow up loving movies. So insert the joke about our voices and thoughts putting his child to sleep. I'm just going to say, James, I think that's a bad idea. Yeah. (laughs) I think that can go wrong. Well, congratulations, James, on Ocean. And I love that you're getting her started early, really, really early. You you can't call the police. That'd be the obvious thing. My brother. Hey, buddy, that don't mean a thing. You go down to that L.A. police department there. You ask them what kind of people kill each other the most. Now, what do you think they would say? Who said anything about killing? Family, people. Brothers, brothers-in-laws, cousins. Real American-type people, buddy. Now, they, they kill each other in the heat, mostly. In uh, the smog alerts and rest fire season right about this time of year. Yeah, this isn't the same. Oh, no? What makes it different? We're not insane! We're not driven acts of violence like that! Not over a dumb movie script! Now sit down! Well, maybe not. God, I love Sam Shepard and God, I love True West. Gary Sinise there with John Malkovich in Steppenwolf Theater Company's legendary production of the Sam Shepard play. The production, originally staged in 1982, was filmed for TV in 84. If you do a little bit of Google searching or looking on YouTube, you can find it. And we do highly recommend that you do. I recall maybe in the mid-90s having a VHS copy of that production of True West. Sinise is a founding member of Steppenwolf back in 1974. Malkovich joined the company in 75. The ensemble now has over 50 members and is one of the most venerable in U.S. theater history. There's a new oral history about the Chicago theater community called Ensemble Out, and I own a copy. I've been reading it, Josh, and thinking about this top five. We thought, why not honor Steppenwolf with one of the most obscure and wordy top fives in the history of the show? We are calling it the top five Steppenwolf member movie performances. There you go. And if you think that, sure, I've heard Malkovich, I've heard of Sinise connected with Steppenwolf, but that's pretty much it. If you look at that ensemble, that 50 strong list, you will see a lot of familiar faces and recognize a lot of the names. And we'll be highlighting some of those here with our list. Yeah, let's jump right in. What's your number five? All right. At number five, I am going to start with a largely forgotten 1995 film, I think, How to Make an American Quilt, directed by Jocelyn Morehouse. Listen to this cast. Winona Ryder stars. She plays a grad student who seeks out advice from her grandmother's quilting club after her boyfriend proposes. And alongside her are Ellen Burstyn, Anne Bancroft, Alfrey Woodard, Maya Angelou, Rip Torn, Dermot Mulroney, and Steppenwolf's Lois Smith. Now, Who's Lois Smith? Well, recent moviegoers will know her as the wise nun in Lady Bird, but her first film credit 
and I didn't know this till I started looking up her filmography, 1955's East of Eden. Hmm. She plays Anne, a servant, I think, in that film. Uh, Lois Smith has also been in Five Easy Pieces, Fatal Attraction, Fried Green Tomatoes, Dead Man Walking, and Minority Report. Those are just a few of many titles, and she's done a ton of TV. Now, in How to Make an American Quilt, Smith plays one of the quilters, Sophia, whose backstory, they each of them has their own backstory and the film flashes back. In that, Samantha Mathis plays the Lois Smith character. Um, but basically her backstory involves her love of diving when she was younger, which she then loses after becoming a harried wife and mother. Smith is something of a foil here as Sophia. She's the crotchety one in the group, very blunt. And what I like about the performance is that Smith is brave enough not to sidestep that at all. She's not afraid to be really cutting. Uh, And then she does get a chance to soften as the movie goes on. In the past, which we learn about her past, it does reveal things that um, let us see another side of her. This all culminates in a wonderful, wordless little moment near the end. Some papers have blown into Smith's backyard pond, and the pond has resonance with her youth. And as she steps barefoot into the water to retrieve the papers, she she just pauses for a minute. And the way she holds her body, you can tell that she's traveling through time right then and there, hitting the water in that way. This is all done in long shot by Morehouse. And so really it's a theatrical moment in a sense because um, there's nothing – it's more about how she holds herself than exactly what the camera is saying really close on her. It's how she holds her body. It's how she quietly and slowly sits down on a rock. Um, and it's just a very moving little bit of acting that Smith gives us. And then a little later in the film, we do get, again, after she's softened a bit, this wise counselor, Lois Smith, who I think is the one we are familiar with as the nun in Lady Bird. Uh, Overall, I'd say How to Make an American Quilt is a bit unsure of what it wants to say about love. A lot of the stories and the memories involve real struggle and pain, and then it kind of makes this somewhat naive romantic turn at the end, given what we've seen before. But I do love movies that remind us that those of an older generation were once young. And, um, you know, it's why I love Back to the Future so much. Uh And How to Make an American Quilt does that really well. Also, the performances are all stellar, including Lois Smith's. How to Make an American Quilt, a movie I have not seen. Josh, did you review it when it came out? Yeah. Or is it one you caught up with? Yeah. Yeah, and I think... I think Morehouse was on my radar, too, because didn't she make – I think she's an Australian filmmaker, and I think she made Proof, um, which came out before this, which uh, I just absolutely loved. And when I heard she was making this um, you know, Hollywood picture, I wanted to check it out, and uh, it's pretty good. Okay. My number five is the aforementioned Gary Sinise as Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump. Well, well, Captain Forrest Gump. I had to see this for myself. <laughs> And I told you if you were ever a shrimp boat captain that I'd be your first mate. Well, here I am. I am a man of my word. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, but don't you be thinking that I'm going to be calling you sir. No, sir. Forrest Gump, of course, from 1994, which would have been just about the point I was discovering Steppenwolf because that's when I was getting in to Sam Shepard, got my copy of his seven plays and read True West for the first time. And 
yeah, I probably would have just about around this time headed to some artsy video rental place in Des Moines and gotten my hands on a copy of that True West production. But I remember seeing Gump in 94 and not being really familiar with Gary Sinise at all. So I must not have watched it just yet. He had done some TV before that. He had three prior movie credits, Jack the Bear, Of Mice and Men, and A Midnight Clear. And I didn't see A Midnight Clear or Jack the Bear, still haven't. Of Mice and Men, I do remember seeing that alongside Malkovich, of course. I remember seeing that occasionally pop up on TV, but Sinise just was not a face that stuck with me. So when I was watching Gump, it felt like a discovery. And I know we're going to get to a controversial Best Picture, now much maligned, somewhat maligned at the time. Best Picture winner as part of our 9 from 99 series in a little bit. We're going to talk about American Beauty. Forrest Gump certainly fits that bill as well. And I know you're pro-Gump, Josh. Oh, yeah. I have always been pro-Gump. I'm less confident than you because I didn't review it back in 94, nor have I seen it since 94. So I'm kind of just going off the nostalgic feeling that I have for it. But a big reason why I enjoyed it so much in 94 was the Lieutenant Dan character and that relationship between him and Forrest and Sinise's portrayal. I think that dynamic between them is entertaining. Forrest is the idealist dreamer. Lieutenant Dan is that hard-edged pragmatist turned bitter cynic. And then miraculously by the end of the film, and literally miraculously, he's an idealist dreamer himself. And I think following that miracle, I think among many really good scenes between Hanks and Sinise in the film, that kind of non-apology apology he gives to Hanks before falling into the water and kind of just doing a backstroke off into the sunset, finally at peace with the world. I think that's a really touching moment in the movie, especially primarily a nonverbal one there in that Robert Zemeckis film, even though it's probably the more verbal moments I really think about between those two performers when I do think back on Forrest Gump. So maybe at some point I'll give it another view. Maybe I will have turned into a bitter cynic as well, Josh, and not enjoy Forrest Gump as much, but I have a hard time believing I won't still appreciate Gary Sinise's performance. You know what he did? He just, he shook that film up and and made it, a lot of it is is very nice. I mean, Forrest is very nice, right? And yeah. then you bring the Lieutenant Dan character in, and especially that bitter edge that mm-hmm. he has in that middle section, um, it gives the movie a bit of an edge that I think it needs to. Sure. So great performance. Uh, the Sinise one that that I almost put on my list, though, uh, comes from Apollo 13. His Ken Mattingly is just, you know, it, it, we talked a little bit about in Ad Astra about the, the generation of men who just gets things done. Mm-hmm. And I think he, he kind of encapsulates that in Apollo 13. I really love his performance there. All right. My number four comes from probably one of the other better-known Steppenwolf Ensemble members, and that's Joan Allen. I'm going to go with The Upside of Anger, uh, another somewhat small film. Allen, I think, has the reputation of being a flinty performer. I think you certainly get that side of her in films like The Ice Storm or The Contender, Pleasantville, and, and probably the Bourne films that she's been in. I do think the best turns on that persona she gives are when she also allows this peak of the vulnerability that's underneath that. And that's definitely what you get in The Upside of Anger. This is from 2005. Uh, Alan plays Terry Ann, uh, the middle-aged mother of four daughters whose husband disappeared on her a few years earlier when we meet her in the film. And in the aftermath of that, her legitimate anger has just curdled and curdled and has begun to poison 
her relationships with her kids. Sounds grim, I know, but then Kevin Costner shows up in this movie as Denny. This is her neighbor, and he kind of becomes an afternoon drinking buddy. They both slide into mm-hmm. this drinking routine together. And Costner brings a looseness to the movie that Alan begins to play against in some really interesting ways. Uh, this is, by the way, one of my favorite Costner performances. His ease is just such a great contrast to Alan's coiled intensity. Um, so playing off of that, she has a light comic touch that we don't see often from her. I don't think of her as having. Um, and it's also just really lovely near the end to see when you see Terry Ann begin to smile. When I think of Joan Allen on screen, her face, I don't see it smiling, just the characters that she often plays. And mm-hmm. when you do see her here, when you watch her get to that point in this movie, very genuinely, it's a real joy. Uh, the daughters, I should say, in the movie played by Erica Christensen, Carrie Russell, Evan Rachel Wood, and Alicia Witt. So really strong supporting cast. It was written and directed by Mike Binder. That's the upside of anger, Joan Allen. A pretty good film that I remember us giving some time to. Nice. Back, I think, in 2005. Yeah, I think maybe, that was yeah, it. The so first, first year, year film spotting, we did give a few minutes to that movie. Joan Allen, very good in that role, without a doubt. My number four movie performance by a Steppenwolf ensemble member comes from an actor who is one of only two people on my list that I have actually seen in a production at Steppenwolf. This was just a few years ago. The play was called The Minutes by ensemble member Tracy Letts, starring William Peterson. And my number four is William Peterson as Agent Will Graham from Michael Mann's Manhunter. 1986 was the year. This is Mann's version of Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, which of course, was remade more recently by Brett Ratner, starring Ed Norton as the Will Graham character. This is Brian Cox playing Hannibal Lecter before we got Anthony Hopkins' Oscar-winning take on Lecter. And Peterson was one of those actors that I was just always kind of fond of. I didn't see this movie in 86 when it originally came out, so I was thinking of him from movies that People, including Peterson himself, have probably long forgotten a baseball movie where he plays a minor leaguer who's also a player and kind of the manager of the team called Long Gone that came out in 87. It was on HBO all the time. Virginia Madsen was his love interest in it. He played Stud Cantrell, and he was a stud. So I just loved William Peterson. And then later see this movie and watched him as Will Graham. I really liked the performance, though. Looking back on some reviews today, Josh, There were a few critics who were very hard on the performance, and they didn't really love Mann's movie either. Dave Kerr, I think writing for the Tribune at the time, or maybe the reader said, the whispery monotone voice Mann has saddled him with, describing Peterson and his performance. The New York Times said, Mr. Peterson utters the emptiest lines without altering the expression of pain profundity that sustains him from quiet start to noisy finish. And the LA Times described him as, less than charismatic. But you know what? I think the performance really works for all the reasons they're kind of decrying it. He's this criminal profiler who has retired, has now been brought back on to try to solve some cases of a serial killer who obviously is on the loose. And he's going back to Hannibal Lecter to try to get his help. Lecter is the reason he retired. He caught him, but Lecter attacked him pretty brutally, and he still has the scars of that, probably some physical ones, definitely the mental ones. And especially in that first scene where Peterson goes to visit Brian Cox as Lecter, you just see that wariness. And Ed Norton, too, not really to 
spend too much time comparing the performances. I think Ed Norton is fine in that movie, but there's a boyishness to Ed Norton that you definitely don't ever think of with Peterson. He was one of those guys who probably had gray hair when he was about 17 years old. And I think because of that too, there's a vulnerability that he brings that Norton maybe doesn't quite show. You really see how nervous he is when he walks into the jail for the first time and is looking at Lecter and man does this neat little trick where Lecter is laying down on the bed and the key slot basically is blocking exactly where he's laying. So you can't see his head. You just see his body. And you know that Graham can't get a good look at him just like we can. It kind of builds up a little bit of suspense as we're finally going to meet the infamous Dr. Lecter. And what they're describing, Josh, in terms of that monotone, that's really, for me, the key to the performance. Peterson playing Graham as someone who is going to be honest with Lecter as much as he can be. And he's going to be very direct, but he's going to be completely unemotional because the moment he lets those emotions out is the moment he's going to betray something to Lecter that Lecter is going to seize on. So as much as he can sort of be Hal from 2001, the the more he's protecting himself. And you really see Peterson protecting himself throughout that entire performance. I want you to help me, Dr. Lecter. Yes. I thought so. It's about Atlanta and Birmingham. Yes. You read about it? In the papers. I don't tear out the articles. I wouldn't want them to think I was dwelling on anything more than that. You want to know how he's choosing them, don't you? I thought you might have some ideas. Why should I tell you? You get to see the file in this case. And there's another reason. Pray tell. I thought you might be curious to see if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for. Then by implication, you think you're smarter than me since you caught me. No. I know that I'm not smarter than you. Then how did you catch me, Will? You had disadvantages. What disadvantages? You're insane. Two other notes, casting-wise. Joan Allen is in this film, actually. She's the blind woman who Tom Noonan plays Francis Dollaride, the killer who Ray Fiennes plays in the more recent version of Red Dragon. Joan Allen's the love interest in Manhunter. And according to Wikipedia, anyway, Richard Gere, Mel Gibson, Paul Newman, all were also considered for this role. But Michael Mann cast him after seeing him play another agent, another cop, if you will, in William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A., that's an honorable mention for me. So how sad is this? I've seen Brett Ratner's Red Dragon and not Michael Mann's Man yeah. Hunter. I, and I'd totally forgotten that Edward Norton was even in Red Dragon. So mm. yeah, definitely a forgettable one. It's worth seeing for sure. Definitely. Especially if you're a bit of a man completist like yeah. I am. Yeah, no, I need to catch up with it for sure. Uh, my number three. Gary Cole in Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky I love it. Bobby. I knew he was going to make your list. <laughs> I had to make the list. I mean, and there were a number of options, comic performances to choose from here. We knew Cole had comic chops before Talladega Nights because we saw him in the Brady Bunch movie. That was 1995. We saw him in Office Space in 1999, other instances as well. Maybe Office Space, you could say, is a more precise, perhaps even nuanced comic turn from Cole, but I've got to go with his performance here because this is Will Ferrell's best comic vehicle, I think, Adam. Yes, even including Casa de Mi Padre. And Cole plays Ferrell's no good, fast-driving father, Reese. This one, I'm just going to let a clip do the work for me, which is generally a good idea when you're talking comedy. So here's Cole in a flashback scene of Reese making a rare appearance at career day when Ricky Bobby was in middle school. Mr. Bobby, there's no smoking in here. Oh, it's all right, darling. I'm a volunteer fireman. Okay. I am a semi-professional race car driver and an amateur tattoo artist. 
And the first thing you gotta learn if you're gonna be a race car driver is you don't listen to losers like your know-it-all teacher over here. Okay, I think that's enough. The teacher wants you to go slow, and she's wrong, because it's the fastest who gets paid, and it's the fastest who gets late. <laughs> Cole does make this more than a jokey cameo, though. He's always funny on screen, but he does get to some, he does ring some pathos out of the part when the movie needs it as much as this movie needs that. Mostly, though, I just love how he fully embraces the shamelessness of this character. That's what makes it such a great performance. That and the way he wrangles a cougar, of course. Rare (laughs) skills. Gary Cole in Talladega Nights. I love it. Okay, my number three here is. A cheat, Josh. And you know what? You give me crap about it. You have for seven years or whatever. But I think my record's pretty clean lately. I don't remember the last full-on cheat I've had. But you know what? I just had to get both of them on the list. And I think you'll indulge me here. They're both from Lady Bird, the married couple, husband and wife in Lady Bird, the great Greta Gerwig film from a couple years ago. Laurie Metcalf as Marion McPherson and Tracy Letts as Larry McPherson. No, you have to choose one. Well, that, if I'm choosing a, that's one. That's the point of this exercise. If I'm choosing one is Laurie Metcalf. Okay. But I want to talk about Tracy Letts. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to do, Josh. Okay. That's how this is going to work. But it doesn't count. That's fine. I mean, I'm the one who updates the website along with Andy's help. So <laughs> you know true. what? That's true. It's going to count, at least in my book. But I know Metcalf is probably going to get some love on your list. And we certainly gave her a lot of love for this performance. Yes, we did. And Deservedly so. I went back and looked at my notes and the description someone gives her in the film as both warm and scary is so dead on. And I think that's not an easy task for a performer to pull off, but she is both of those things. And if Metcalf had played her as just overbearing, which she is a little bit and maybe too controlling, then she might be funny, but we wouldn't see ourselves in her and we wouldn't see ourselves in our relationship with our kids that we see on screen in her relationship with her kids. You'll recall a list we did. One of my favorite top fives here on the show, actually, because it's one of the more personal ones, are two real parenting moments. And there's about 17 candidates from Lady Bird because of Metcalf and Saoirse Ronan and Greta Gerwig's great writing and directing. But I really like to see Tracy Letts getting a lot more opportunities here as an actor, most known as a playwright. Of course, the Pulitzer winning August Osage County and Bug and Killer Joe, among many others. But in addition to writing a lot of plays and performing on stage, including in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf over the years, he's been making a lot of appearances in some pretty notable supporting turns, including... My Beloved The Big Short, Christine from 2016 with Rebecca Hall and Greta Gerwig's Little Women coming out this Christmas. She is casting Let's Again in that. And I actually just saw before Ad Astra the trailer for Ford versus Ferrari, which stars Let's as Henry Ford II. And you see it in the trailer. That's the movie coming out starring Christian Bale and Matt Damon. You see in his glimpses in the trailer that that's what we think of if you know tracy letts at all if you've seen him in other things or any of the roles i've mentioned you think of him as this guy who's kind of big and a little bit blustery certainly forceful not a wallflower and that's what i love about his performance as larry mcpherson in Lady Bird. and he talked about it in a really good profile that i think was in the la times when the movie came out he said i'm 6'3 i've got a deep voice a certain i don't know gravity or something that people see so they want to put me in a suit and have me order drone strikes and he says this part was delightful because it's temperamentally much closer to who i really am he's the guy that just wants to read the paper and 
and sip coffee. And he definitely isn't ordering any drone strikes. And that's more like the Larry McPherson that we get in Lady Bird. And I love what he said about the character, the insight, which seems like both a playwright's insight and an actor's insight about Larry. He says that when he first read it, I thought he believes the job of parenting is essentially over. His wife thinks there's more yet to do, and that in some ways is the conflict between them, as well as the conflict between Lady Bird and her mom, which was very playable, he says, very understandable. I don't have kids, but I would imagine you don't necessarily, as parents, get to the same place at the same time in terms of making that decision, oh, they're ready to be released into the world. So what's playable aren't phrases like, you know, they're both flawed parents and one's kind of a good cop and a bad cop and one's high strung and he's the low strung one and that they're both flawed. You can't really play any of those words, but if you understand the character's psyche, if you have a way in like Let's clearly did with Larry and you understand what's driving his actions or his inactions in this case, then that you can play and he does it very well. He's the other actor who I've seen on stage at Steppenwolf and actually multiple times he was in Homebody Cobble, which is a Tony Kushner play. I saw a few years back he was in Mammoth's American Buffalo, very good production of that. And then I've seen his plays as a writer, The Minutes, as I said, and also his superior donuts, which Michael McKeon was in. And then that got turned into a show on CBS. I'm not sure if it's still on or not. But if you're a fan of Let's's work or more curious about his work, Steppenwolf does have a production coming up in the next year of Bug, which that movie was reviewed here on the show a few years back, directed by Friedkin Ashley Judd, starring opposite Michael Shannon. You can see a new production of Let's's Play Bug as Steppenwolf with Carrie Coon, the great actress Carrie Coon, also a Steppenwolf ensemble member starring in Bug. She is, as it turns out, married to Tracy Letts as well. What I like about Lutz's performance in Lady Bird as the father there is he allows that element of it, the, you know, that you could play it positive. He's ready for her to leave. And so he doesn't have to work as much. And I think a lot of audiences took it that way because he was sort of the the lovable big yes. bear of a dad compared right. to Metcalf's mom. But if you watch the performance closely, you can see that he also allows that to be a fault, how he's maybe retreated more than he should have. For sure. Um, and while his temperament may be more ingratiating, um, his reasoning, yeah, Lutz gives us just enough he does. Uh, clues to see that maybe that is actually a fault. Did you know that Alanis Morissette wrote this song in only 10 minutes? I believe it. <laughs> so, I'm applying to a couple East Coast schools. I need you to help me with the financial aid application, but mom can't know. We, uh, aren't they quite expensive? First, yes, that's why financial aid. Second, I have to get in first. Mom won't be happy about it. Which is why I don't want to fight about it before I have to. Just pull over here. Are you sure? I, I can no. drive you to the front. This is fine. I like to walk. He's so great. An honorable mention for me. All right. My number two, I tried to avoid this one. I knew I had to do Malkovich um, because he's John Malkovich. And we have just reviewed being John Malkovich. We did our 9 from 99 review a couple of weeks ago. So I thought maybe I should do thought about Jane Campion's adaptation of Henry James' Portrait of a Lady, where he's a very villainous Malkovich, but I had to go with being John Malkovich. It's really the performance that deserves a slot. You can go back to that review for my thoughts. We did spend a fair amount of time, I think, on his performance in particular. But for now, I wanted to find a review from 99 that spoke about what Malkovich was doing. And this comes from Wesley Morris. Here he's writing for the San Francisco Chronicle. In 1999, 
Malkovich's screen acting had begun to take on a smug, self-parodic intensity, but he gets Kaufman's joke and welcomes the film as an antidote for his histrionics. Here he provides a celebrity means to the public star-obsessed end. It's not Malkovich that Craig, Maxine, and Lottie want. It's the idea of him. Malkovich is complicated to the point that he's both a metaphor and a man. I just think yeah. that's so great. And, you know, it's it's true. This could have been just a piece of self-satire. And he probably would have gotten just as much praise, maybe even more so if he'd pushed more in that direction. But you can tell that he's really invested in this bizarre material, in the ideas behind it, beyond just the fact that it's his celebrity status that they're kind of using to get at those ideas. So, yeah, that's Wesley Morris again on my number two Steppenwolf Ensemble screen performance, John Malkovich and being John Malkovich. Yeah, we definitely commented on the fact that we were surprised by the depth of that performance mm-hmm. and that it wasn't just him as an object, really, for all of the other action and all the other performers in the movie. And I can't remember if we commented on it or not, but one of the things that did stand out to me on that rewatch is how you do see Malkovich when he is later inhabited by Cusack and Cusack has really taken over his body. You still see shades of Cusack's Craig In Cusack's Malkovich, you see how Malkovich kind of has that hunched over posture that we always see from Craig. And so it's subtle. It's not a case where he's really trying to draw a lot of attention to it. And yet it does come through. My number two is an actress who has already made your list, Josh Joan Allen. But I'm going with her performance as Betty Parker in the movie Pleasantville. And you didn't touch on this, but when I think about Joan Allen... And this goes back to Manhunter. Maybe this was kind of planted in my mind thinking about William Peterson. But I often think of her as playing an innocent character. She can be an icy character, but she can also be an innocent character, someone who's wholesome, someone who's virtuous. And yet, despite that virtue, there's always this threat of her sexuality. And I use the word threat because that's how the characters in the movie perceive that sexuality. Think about her very good turn in The Contender, right, where Mm -hmm. she's a candidate basically for president, should be taking over as president. She's the vice president, I believe, to Jeff Bridges' character and Gary Oldman and all the old cronies in the Senate don't want to appoint her because they believe some rumor about her sexual past. And The Ice Storm, another film where on the surface, everything in that Connecticut suburban town and that house is perfect and underneath we know they're exploring some darker things but that dichotomy i think is most vividly on display in pleasantville the movie that stars reese witherspoon and toby mcguire as twin siblings and they somehow get transported back to this 1950s sitcom that mcguire is obsessed with william h macy's the husband joan allen as betty is the wife and josh don't worry I'm not going to offer a rhetorical analysis of the bathtub scene, Betty's solo sexual awakening. I will not do that. But I do love the moments leading up to it where Reese Witherspoon, her character, has proven to be a little bit promiscuous in the film. She's explaining to her mother what sex is because she doesn't even know what it is as a concept. And the way Alan plays that whole scene in her response to it, you recognize that She doesn't have a clue about any of this stuff. She's truly learning about it for the first time. And yet there is a hunger behind her eyes that Alan taps into where you recognize that she's not just reluctantly or sort of totally naively being brought to this knowledge. She's actively seeking it. It's as if she knows that she's repressed without 
having any way to verbalize or intellectualize or articulate what that repression is. And after this awakening in the bathtub, we get a sense of how that knowledge is changing her, how it's changing the town as a whole. And the scene that really slays me in Pleasantville, Josh, is the one with McGuire and Alan in the kitchen after she's had the awakening. And she's now in color. She's standing away from her son. She's looking out the window and she's upset and says, what am I going to do? And if you haven't seen the movie recently, there are, of course, racial allusions to the people in the town who are colored versus non-colored. And the whole movie is playing off this Garden of Eden concept anyway, and the kind of fall of man and discovering yourself biting the forbidden fruit and standing in the kitchen. She's full of shame after this awakening. She is completely full of shame. And the heartbreaking part of it is we see her now in color. It's a more complete Betty, a more evolved Betty, if you will. And yet she feels the need to hide it. And there's this wonderful exchange where he helps her hide it by putting black and white makeup, putting makeup on her to cover up the color that's coming through. But I love that we get this pause on his face where he looks distressed and you recognize that, well, he's helping her, which is what she needs right now. But in helping her, He's just furthering her repression because she's not quite ready yet. What am I going to do? Can't go out there this way. How can I go out there this way? Look at me. I knew this was a really good Joan Allen performance, but it was only as I went back and revisited these scenes and really watched the layers she's bringing to it that I knew it was going to make my list. So Joan Allen from Pleasantville is my number two. All right. So Joan Allen twice now we've covered. I'm going to go back to another name we've talked about, another performance we've talked about, actually. I did have to put Laurie Metcalf at number one here for Lady Bird. And I don't know, maybe it's the recency bias, but watching some of the scenes again with her I realized you could watch this entire movie. This performance is so strong uh, and so full. You could watch this entire movie from her character's perspective, and it would absolutely make sense. This loving, awkward, stressed out mother. I mean, Marion McPherson is so integral to this story. Now, part of that, as you were talking about, Adam, has to do with director Greta Gerwig's attention and generosity, really, with supporting characters. I mentioned Lois Smith being in Lady Bird, and uh, we've talked about Tracy Lutz in Lady Bird as well. Part of it also, I think, has to do with Gerwig's emphasis as a writer, so how she frames the mother-daughter relationship as the central one of this movie, I think. And that's where the whole movie opens, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also entirely to do with Metcalf's performance. Uh, when we reviewed Lady Bird, I talked about how precisely she captures Marion's passive-aggressive attempts at controlling her fearlessly independent child, the way she lets her dye her hair, but obsessively monitors that towel count, right? The number of towels that she uses. And I also talked about how Metcalf makes us understand that this is clearly all out of love. It really is coming out of love. And we see that not in anything she says to her, but in the way she looks at her. That sad, exasperated smile is her initial response when she sees Ladybird. But watching these scenes, I realized something else going on. Underneath Marion being at her wit's end with Ladybird's growing independence and her disrespect is really a panic. And it's the reverse of what you were talking about in Tracy Lett's performance as the father, where he's begun to distance his, himself. Yeah. Here she's, she's just panicking. further entrenched. She's panicking that she's doing, that having done what she thinks is the best 
she's been able to do as a parent. She's had difficulties. She hasn't been perfect. But what she thinks is the best, she's starting to realize that it may not have been enough and that time is running out Mm -hmm. for them before Lady Bird leaves the nest. Wrong side of the tracks. I didn't mean it that way. It was a joke. Yeah, it's just a joke. Mom and Dad, they don't care. We didn't think we'd be in this house for 25 years. We thought we would have moved someplace better. Whatever we give you, it's never enough. It's never enough. It is enough. Do you have any idea what it costs to raise you and how much you're just throwing away every day? Give me a number. What? Give me a number. I don't understand. You give me a number for how much it costs to raise me, and I'm going to get older and make a lot of money and write you a check for what I owe you so that I never have to speak to you again. Well, I highly doubt that you will be able to get a job good enough to do that. So, yep, doesn't get much better than Laurie Metcalf and Lady Bird. Yeah, she's so good. Okay, of course, I'm going to make room for John Malkovich on my list as well. And I had one bit of homework I was determined to do for this top five. And fortunately, Malkovich did not disappoint. I had a long time blind spot that I needed to fill in. And that movie is Dangerous Liaisons. Malkovich as the Vicomte de Valmont is my number one movie performance by a Steppenwolf theater ensemble member. This is the Stephen Frears movie. And it turns out the movie's Fine. There's some odd camera choices and editing choices. And Michelle Pfeiffer, who is the object of his desire, if you will, is not really a well-developed character. Pfeiffer is very good, and she, I think, was nominated for an Oscar for it, but her character is kind of just a means to an end in the film, and I don't think she's really given a chance to show the virtues that Malkovich's character is constantly commenting on. I think about Cruel Intentions, which is basically a remake Mm -hmm. of this movie. And of course, this is the Ryan Phillippe character that Malkovich is playing in the movie. But Reese Witherspoon in that film, I remember not loving Cruel Intentions, but feeling like, oh, I understand how she's actually, as a person, having this transformative effect on Phillippe. You never really get that sense, unfortunately, with Pfeiffer and Malkovich. At least I didn't. But if you were going to sum up, and I think this word has been used a lot probably with Malkovich throughout his career, but if you were going to sum up the Vicomte, you would say he's reptilian. And this is him at his reptilian most. He is absolutely cold-blooded. He's slimy. He looks at everyone like he's eyeing prey. And really, the gist of the film, I mentioned Cruel Intentions, so if you know that film, you know what it is. But Glenn Close plays a former lover. I believe it suggested that they were once married. And now they're kind of sparring partners who like to make these bets with each other that they can kind of humiliate other people in society and just sort of have their way with the aristocracy. And he sets his sights on corrupting Michelle Pfeiffer's character. I don't want to belabor the reptile metaphor too much, but there's a moment in this movie, Josh, where Malkovich literally hisses at a character. He hisses at Susie Kurtz, who is the mother to Uma Thurman's character. We won't touch on that subplot, but that Malkovich near whisper that he uses a lot, that just continual state of amusement he seems to be in where he feels or exhibits the sense of being superior to everyone around him. That's what you get in every scene in this movie where he just seems to have this keen understanding of human nature that he can absolutely manipulate anyone to his will, except it seems 
Glenn Close, her character, where with her, we see a different layer to the Malkovich performance where he's a little bit more childlike and not totally powerless, but he is definitely under her spell. And there are any number of scenes I could choose from this movie to play that show Malkovich at his most Malkovich. There's the beyond my control scene where we see him with Pfeiffer at his most cruel or telling her that all he can offer her is his friendship, which is him at his most cruelly charming. But the scene that clinched this performance as my number one, Josh, is probably not one of the more memorable scenes in the movie. In fact, I couldn't find any quotes from it online when I was looking for it. But at this point in the movie, Pfeiffer is madly, desperately in love with him. He's succeeded. She's coming to visit and he's finishing up with a courtesan with a prostitute. He's literally about to hand her the money and send her on her way. And it occurs to him, well, rather than be sneaky about it and kind of show her out the back door, spare Pfeiffer's character the indignity, no, I'm going to just go ahead and let her walk in and she can witness this. This would just be another game I play. And that's exactly what happens. The prostitute walking out, brushing past her and giggling as she goes. And of course, she's distraught. She's horrified. She's Completely upset, she tries to leave, and Malkovich convinces her to hear him out. I don't want your lies and excuses! Sit down. Just hear me out. That's all I ask. Then you can judge. Unfortunately, I cannot unlive the years I lived before I met you, and during those years, I had a wide acquaintance, the majority of whom were no doubt undesirable in one respect or another. Now, it may surprise you to know that Emily, in common with many others of her character and profession, is kind-hearted enough to take an interest in those less fortunate than herself. In short, she has the time and the inclination to do a great deal of charity work. Donations to hospitals, soup for the poor, protection for animals, anything which touches her sentimental heart. From time to time, I make a small contribution to her purse. That's all. So it's only somewhat evident there in his voice, just in the audio, but it's undeniable in his face the devilish delight Malkovich is bringing to the dialogue. I think a lot of other characters probably would have said, okay, this is so patently absurd, what I am telling her, and yet she has to buy it. She'll never believe it. Soup for the poor, protection for animals. She even knows that she's a courtesan. She's never going to buy any of this. I have to sell the sincerity. I have to be completely earnest, and there really just can't be any sense of falseness to it whatsoever. And Malkovich, being Malkovich, and knowing this character of the VCOM, he knows what he knows, which is that everybody wants to hear what they want to hear. Everybody believes what they want to believe. And damn it, this is just another fun challenge for him. When you watch it, it's as if he didn't know what he was going to say until the words are coming out of his mouth. And the more ridiculous it gets, the more fun he's having the more amusing it actually is. And he's so confident and comfortable with himself to risk it too. She's looking down the whole time because she's in tears. But had she looked up and seen the grin on his face and how much fun he was having, he probably would have just merely improvised that as well and got her to buy it. It's really a wonder watching Malkovich have fun just tormenting Pfeiffer in that scene and throughout the whole film. Yeah, almost like he 
you said fun challenge, almost like he's waiting for this to be challenged. Exactly. So that, yeah, the game can continue. Yeah. Uh, well, all I'm going to take away from that, though, Adam, is that you think Cruel Intentions is a better movie than Dangerous Liaisons. That's that's a very Josh Larson mm, no, perspective. No, I don't think so I, I, don't think I went it. that far. <laughs> I do think I like the Reese Witherspoon okay. character better. All right. Can't push you further. Okay. No, you can't. Those are our top five Steppenwolf member movie performances. Josh, any other honorable mentions that haven't been mentioned yet? I thought for sure when we were first talking about this topic and I started playing actors in my mind that John Mahoney would make this list for me from Say Anything, the father in Say Anything. Uh, Great performance there. Mahoney, of course, died not too long ago, February of 2018. And one that almost squeaked on, Martha Plimpton. In the Goonies, just hmm. it brings a, a, a little bit of spikiness to, to her scenes there that that really enliven them. So I thought about those two. And, of course, the ones I've already mentioned that were definitely close to making the list, Tracy Letts in Lady Bird and then Gary Sinise in Apollo 13. Well, in addition to Malkovich as himself and being John Malkovich, I, of course, thought about Mitch Leary in In the Line of Fire, that Clint Eastwood movie, one of two Best Supporting Actor nominations Malkovich received. I would have probably assumed the other one was for Dangerous Liaisons. Film spotting t-shirt, Josh, if you can guess. You'll never guess. What's the other movie Malkovich got nominated for? Places in the Heart. You know, how do you know that? Did you look just, it up? Okay. <laughs> I was just looking it up well, as you were talking about it. Of course. I <laughs> because, forgot that we prepared for the same top five list. <laughs> well, I did I did have that question as you were talking about Dangerous Liaisons. I thought this is where he did kind of come into at least my public consciousness. Mm-hmm. So it was probably because he got an Oscar nom, right? But no. Sure. But there's also his great turn as Teddy KGB in the movie Rounders. Thought about all of those. I mentioned Joan Allen as Lainey Hansen in The Contender. I mentioned William Peterson as Agent Richard Chance and to live and die in L.A. You had Gary Cole on your list. I mean, come on. His Lumberg, his Bill Lumberg from Office Space is going to go down in history as one of the all-time great slash awful movie bosses. Indeed, Carrie Coon in Gone Girl, where I discovered her as an actress opposite Ben Affleck. She plays his sister in that movie. And you said John Mahoney, of course, thought about him as James Court in My Beloved Say Anything. I love that Cameron Crowe movie, but I also really like him as Kid Gleason in the Eight Men Out film, the movie about the 1919 Chicago Black Sox. I will say, if you are from this area and somehow have never been to a Steppenwolf play or you live nearby, can highly recommend it. One of the shows currently playing right now, just through October 20th, is called The Great Leap, which I don't know anything about, Josh, other than today. A friend of mine who also loves the theater and loves Steppenwolf said it's the best production she's ever seen there. Okay. So those are big words. And then since the book inspired this top five ensemble and oral history, on October 14th, the author of that book, Mark Larson, will be at Steppenwolf. You can buy tickets, which include a copy of the book and they're going to do a signing and they're going to have a conversation about it in the history of Steppenwolf. Deanna Dunnigan will be there. Francis Guinan, who's an ensemble member and probably some other artists as well. That's October 14th. So we'll link to more information about that and Steppenwolf in our show notes at filmspotting.net. Josh, that is our show. Indeed it is over at filmspotting.net. You can also find more reviews, interviews, and top fives going all the way back to 2005. And on the website, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll, what is Joaquin Phoenix's best performance? To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. We are on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Out in limited release this weekend, including right here in Chicago, is Judy the movie we previewed 
last week with our top five Judy Garland moments. Michael Phillips from the Tribune was here for that fun show. We do hope to catch up with that movie and may give it a minute or two on an upcoming show. Out in wide release is abominable. Finally, we're going to get to see if Zendaya is Michi. Do you get that, Josh? No. Do you get that viral reference? Sorry. Okay. too late in the show. Yeah, it really is. Next week, I am off in Europe, and Josh, I'm guessing, will try to get a head start on our contemporary Chinese marathon. Maybe fit in a few of those movies? Yeah, that would be a very good idea. Okay. We will come back the weekend of October 11th, and yeah, we'll talk about Joker. Fine. We'll talk about Joker. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant for a little while yet, anyway, for now, is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. We'd also like to thank the Communication Arts Department at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois, which provided the recording space for this episode. Learn more at TRNTY. Our music this week is by Greg Felden. It comes from the album Made of Strings. Yeah, Greg Felden, a friend and recommendation from my old college roommate, Kevin Rich, really the guy who in a roundabout sort of way is responsible for 15 years of this show, the guy who introduced me to Sam. So thank you. Kevin for that. And thank you for the recommendation. If you want more information, you can find it at gregfelden.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.